This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Daniel, producer at Intelligence Squared. For this week's episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast, we were joined by Richard Seymour. Richard Seymour is a Marxist intellectual and he is the author of a new book called The Twittering Machine. He was interviewed by Jamie Bartlett, who's one of the country's top tech journalists. And in the podcast, we looked at Richard Seymour's book, The Twittering Machine, which is a really interesting mix of psychoanalysis and journalistic techniques looking into users, developers, and security experts of social media to look at the dystopian and potentially harmful consequences of our relationship with social media. We hope you enjoy listening to the episode. And if you do enjoy the episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find the podcast and lets us know what you think of the show. Hello, welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. So I'm here with Richard Seymour, Marxist writer and broadcaster and author of The Twittering Machine, which I'm holding here. Richard, welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, great to be here with you. I really enjoyed the book. I'm going to get on to the title and what it means in a second, but yeah. I just actually wanted to start um, with, uh, with the dedication, actually. <laughs> Quite a strange place. It says, to the Luddites. What, are you, uh, what does that mean? It's a bit of a wind-up, partly because I, <laughs> I thought, you know, some people are going to say this is a Luddite book. But it does actually, in the conclusion, briefly discuss the Luddites, largely because they've been the subject of a bit of historical travesty. You know, they've been made out to, te- uh, to be technophobes. And all they really wanted was for the workers not to be dominated by the machines. And if you see in the beginning of the book, I describe three what you might characterize as kind of dialectical reversals. So Thomas More describes how in the age of enclosures, mm-hmm. um, the sheep are eating the people. Well... I mean, what was really going on there was the people were being turfed off the fields and becoming very poor and gaunt. The sheep were eating well because sheep wool was selling for plenty of money and the sheep became fat. So that's one of these reversals. The next one was, you know, machines start operating people. In other words, you don't have any real autonomy in the factory or the workplace. The machine, the pace of the machine, the, the way it works dominates you and determines how you work. Now, you can't just blame the machine for that because the machine is obviously it it automates a certain kind of human purpose you know as does any computer program so um we need to think about what we think machinery and technology is mm. before we start getting technophobic and then you know the third one is obviously we are writing more than we ever have before in human history when has it been the case in human history that people were writing on their toilet breaks, writing on the tube, writing uh, during dinner uh, dates or whatever? Some people, according to surveys, are doing it during sex. Um, so, you know, this is 
frantic writing at a hectic pace. I guess a, a, a more obvious first question is yeah. actually what the title means, because when you first look at it, you think the Twittering machine, oh, it's something about Twitter, but it's, there's, it's something different. I'd never heard of this before. Just tell me about the title. Okay, well, this does actually bear on your last question, um, because the uh, Twittering machine, well, the title comes from a painting by Paul Clay, who's mm. a surrealist. And it depicts a mechanical contraption. You've got these mechanical birds on a shaft turned by a crank. And when you turn the crank, the birds work. They sing. But underneath the, the, the contraption is a reddened pit. So it's a lure. It draws you in to the pit of hell, as it were. And so it's a sort of a horror metaphor for the twittering machine. And the twittering machine, just to be clear, is not, strictly speaking, machinery or bits of code or whatever... It is the apparatus of writing and writers. And when I say that we're all writing more than we ever have in human history, we're also being written. Because, you know, historically, there have always been hierarchies of writing in any human society. There's the Constitution or the Bible. You know, there's the national education system, national media system. And you can go down to the lowliest person scribbling in a diary, right? What we have now is layers of hard-written computer code starting to invert or uh, alter these these hierarchies. And so a lot of our social reality now, given that we are living in part through our devices, through our social, our, our online social relations, uh, these are being written and protocoled and algorithmed and all the rest of mm. it. And that reflects the human purposes of those who devise these technologies and so on. And so I suppose the question is, what kind of purposes are those? I mean, in what way are we being written and for whose ends? See, that's, I think that's where this book is slightly different from, from other technology books. So there's a lot of technology books out there at the moment. I've written a couple of them myself. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are critical of technology in various ways and the trouble that they're causing us. Mm -hmm. But you focus in on this idea of writing, especially, that... Yeah. that, that which I hadn't really seen before in many of the other technology books. What's going on now, you say, is just the sheer amount of... When you say writing, you say it's more than just the written word. It's all these, oh, other, yeah. the, all these other ways that we are creating and storing and sharing information generally. Absolutely. So what's the problem with us doing all of this then? What's, I mean, because that's kind of the summary of the book, isn't it? I mean, what is the problem with us writing all the time now? Actually, nothing uh, is intrinsically problematic about it, um, you know. And to be honest, there's a bit of a kind of a joke involved here because, you know, as a writer, my fantasy is that everybody wants to write now. And really, that's not quite what's going on. A lot of people are sort of writing because they're being goaded into it, you know, by... If you think about what appears on someone's feed... You're not talking about writing in books, though, are you? We're still, we are really talking about writing onto screens. Sure, but that's, it's still writing. Mm. All right, but, but just to answer your question more directly, you think about it historically, we tend to think of writing as alphabetic, which means it represents human speech in various sort of character forms. But we know historically musical writing, seismography, various other forms of writing have nothing to do with human voice. We also know that historically other forms of writing, Chinese writing, doesn't necessarily represent the human voice in a straightforward way. You could trace writing back to the, I mentioned in the book, the quipus, which were sort of lengths of knotted string, which would be read by touch. You would sort of run your mm. hands over them, much as you might read Braille, and that would tell you roughly how much somebody owed in, ta in taxes or whatever. So this is just to say that writing isn't necessarily something that has to be visual, and it isn't necessarily something that has to represent speech. 
Cool. Let's just get a quick, an actual overview of the book itself. So anyone who doesn't, you know, comes to this a bit, a bit clear, a bit fresh, doesn't actually know the subject. How do you, how would you just describe the the sort of thesis of the book in, in a couple of sentences? That's a good. That's a really good question. Okay, I suppose the thesis of the book is this: we we start off with there's various ills associated with social media. But ten years ago, maybe a bit longer. We had this cyber utopianism. Social media is going to open up everything to us. We're going to have Twitter revolutions, Facebook revolutions. It's going to make things a lot easier, more horizontal. Were you a believer in those ideas? No, I was a bit more skeptical then. But I did, for a brief period, I had a moment of optimism about it. But we now associate it now with much more problematic behaviors. Trolling, for example. We associate it with addiction, fake news, so-called which I think is a highly problematic concept. Now we're associating it with alt-right subcultures. And so I wanted to figure out, like, what is actually going on here? And can we talk about this without lapsing into a moral panic about technology? In other words, without just scapegoating technology for stuff that's going on in human societies. And what I think I come up with in the end is, look, this machinery is not set up to promote fascism. It's not set up to promote lies. But... It is set up to make us work. It's, uh, it's not a market and it's not an, a democracy. We're not voters and we're not consumers. We're lab rats. We're workers. We're unwaged workers. And the point of it is to goad us into produ- production. And the way it goads us into production is it gives us a feed. And in the feed, there'll be two or three or four items that will wind you up. They know what winds you up because the algorithms detect what advances user engagement. Mm. So when they wind you up, you feel like the only catharsis is to write something. And so that has certain um, uh, collateral effects, effects which are not necessarily consciously intended. They don't particularly set out to promote uh, far-right content on YouTube. It just so happens that far-right infotainment does very well with the YouTube model Mm. of profit-making. It just so happens that Twitter has done extremely well out of Trump and his Twitter storms and the kind of culture wars out of which the alt-right is generated. Seems to me that throughout, you, you don't really blame the technology so much as say it's a sort of reflection of some underlying tendencies that we already have or the sort of, it's we desire the things that we're now complaining about. We say that we don't want all of this info destroying the public discourse, but, but we actually secretly do kind of want it. I think we do and we don't. We're always ambivalent, and that's a good thing. We, uh, ambivalence makes things interesting. But what I would say, it's not just a, a passively a reflection of these tendencies. It takes hold of them. And it magnifies and potentiates him. That's the crucial thing. Tendencies like? Well, take, for example, the fact of widespread depression in our society and addiction. These tendencies have been at work for a long, long time, many decades. And it's, uh, the, the, the sort of scale of depression has been increasing. And correspondingly, the scale of uh, social interaction has been decreasing. People are meeting one another a lot less, dating a lot less, having a lot less sex, all that stuff. Now... That corresponds to increased depression, loneliness. And so it's not that, you know, social media has ruined our social lives, as as some people may think, but rather that at the time that our lives, our social relations were becoming disappointing, were letting us down, weren't working for for various reasons, the network offered a substitute. And the thing about it is, is that it's one of those things where the cure is worse than the disease because what we've seen is that it's actually catalyzed depression. People who 
get hooked on this celebrified model of social mm. interaction um, are more likely to feel depressed, more likely to feel uh, suicidal, more likely to self-harm, especially young girls on Instagram, mm. for reasons I hope are pretty obvious. And that actually raises an interesting question. What should it be about being a celebrity, as we all are now? We all have public relations images insofar as mm. we have one of yeah. these accounts, and we all have to have a public relations strategy because we have to think, do I want to post this? Do I want to tweet this? Yeah. Um, and we do it very badly. But uh, the point is that... Um, if we are going to be celebrities, why should that be so depressing? And, you know, one of the most interesting things I find out, because um, I wouldn't have guessed this myself, but, you know, we know that celebrities can have these meltdowns. I didn't realize that the scale of suicide among celebrities was so much bigger. Yeah, than you the said I think so, somewhere between seven and 5,000 times I mean, it, more the, than the, the, the average. The, the research yeah. uh, varies, but it, it, what they all agree is that it's much bigger than the wider population. So you, you're sort of saying that some of those, we're all becoming sort of mini celebrities, or we have to take on the trappings of celebrity behavior and the concerns of celebrities. How am I being seen? How do I look? How do others judge me? And live in the glare, the small glare, in a, in a lesser way than they do, but it's affecting us in a strangely similar way to how celebrities have had to deal with it's, life in the spotlight. I think it's a bit like, I mean, what you were saying there, you know, how do I look and how does it reflect on me? There's the I and the me. In other words, they're two different things. Uh, the, this me, as, as it were, is your online icon. Mm. It's what everybody sees and you cultivate it and you think, I want people to love me. But really what they're loving is this, this fake because mm. um, everybody's image is to some extent manufactured curated and so on and that's okay but it's just that if you're seeking to generate you know love and so on one of the things that can do is immiserate the eye that remains mm. it, it sort mm. of leaves you feeling a bit squashed and uh, impoverished mm. and if you think about um, a common practice on say for example instagram you see people doing this a lot where they will heavily filter their their image, their selfies. They post a lot of selfies, but they heavily filter it and they make it so that like wrinkles and flaws and so on are, are smudged out. Now, okay, I can see why that way you'd feel more comfortable sharing an image of yourself like that. But one of the things that's going to do is make you more, despise even more, those little so-called imperfections. Yeah. And that's what it, and you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking from a point of view of superiority. I've been on the selfie spirals. I've done all this stuff. Yeah, I was going to ask so, about that. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, I mean, also I've been the troll. I've been the online vigilante. So, you know, just to be clear, everything I talk about in this book, I've been in that zone. Well, that makes, can I just hold, hold you there for a second? Because sure. I've, I've often thought with technology critics, and I include myself in this, that sometimes when I am complaining about tendencies in society that are driven by technology, I'm half talking about the things I don't like myself doing. Sure. So when I complain about people clicking clickbait and, you know, and piling in on people or checking their phone too often and losing their sense of self, I'm half talking about me yeah. and what I do. Is that... Is that an experience you've had? Of course. I mean, because you, you can't, well, you can't write about anything unless you've got some investment in it. And I find, you know, it helps to, you know, to have some sort of, whether it's an unconscious investment, something comes up in your dreams or something, you think, oh, I can write about that because that means something to me. And it's um, much more productive, I think, than sometimes you have to write polemically and it's necessary. Mm. And that involves pedantically going through the facts. Well, okay, that might be necessary, but it's not the best form of writing. 
The best mm. form of writing is when you've got something at stake, something of yourself is really powerfully at stake. And this book really is about me trying to break my addiction to these things. Now, I get the impression, running through this book, a slight frustration about the the very sort of thin forms of analysis that society does on technology problems. Fake news, trolling, the rise of the radical right, why are people mean to each other online? <laughs> My impression is that you, you feel like the way that we, we collectively talk about those problems is very shallow. So f- let's take fake news because yeah. you cover that in some details. You think that the way we talk about fake news is actually a bit misleading. Yeah, it's it. I think it's displacement. I think it's uh, one of the one example of a moral panic way of talking about a problem. Or actually, you know, to put it uh, concisely, fake news is fake news. It's a conspiracy theory about conspiracy theories. It's essentially a way of explaining deeply rooted problems in our information ecologies. So, for example, you know, for a long, long time in the media, there's been a tendency uh, towards what's called journalism. Journalists uh, being paid uh, to rapidly turn around articles based on press releases, based mm. on you know government phone calls, whatever. There's long also been a long-standing tendency towards infotainment, where in order to, to inform anybody about anything, you have to make it exciting, titillating, which is not necessarily the most informative way of doing anything. The, all of these tendencies were well underway before anybody had ever heard of clickbait. Okay. When was the era of unalloyed truth-telling? When was the Mm. era when, you know, we didn't have, for example, fake news stories about Iraq or about Vietnam? Or, you know, you could pick your own examples. So I think that particularly media organizations and journalists have this nostalgic idea that, you know, if we go back to the era before the, the Internet, we wouldn't have all this fake news running around. Well, no, what we have is a more concentrated expression of things that were on already underway. And one way to think about this is that if you look back at these old uh, Cold War print giants like the Sun, the Murdoch Press or the Axel Springer Press in Germany, they had two separate kinds of uh, ideological model, if you like. One was the advertising funded and driven model, which would have in, tr- in principle been content agnostic. Advertisers don't care what you put in the paper as long as you attract a certain kind of audience. They're not that bothered. Whereas on the other hand, you had the um, proprietor who usually had some sort of ideological agenda, you know, fighting the Cold War, whatever mm. it was. And those things collided. And then, of course, in the middle of all that, you had journalists and you had editors who all had their own professional ideologies about what constitutes a newspaper, what is news, what is good reporting, all of that stuff. And Facebook and Twitter just take all of that stuff out. They have no interest in any of that stuff because they're not a news organization. They keep Mm. saying, don't Mm. call us media. They are media. They're pure media, but they they don't want to be saddled with the responsibility of Mm. editorializing or any of that stuff. And the legal Um, and financial responsibilities that come with it. Absolutely. You know, I mean, because then you might be taxed to fund journalism or any number of things. Okay, so... All they've done is purified that content agnosticism of the advertising-driven model. And because they are in no way interested in content, they're actually more effective at distributing it and assigning it. Mark Zuckerberg gave the most uh, controversial expression of this when he said, you know, I wouldn't mind if there was Holocaust revisionism on there because, well, if some people find that useful. Well, he had to back off from that um, under public pressure, but... In general, I think that does reflect their commercial attitude. It's not, you're not saying, I mean, so something has clearly changed. 
what you in wouldn't the last say. I mean, we've years. had we've, when when was the golden age of unalloyed, you know, truth telling in yeah. news? Never, but something <laughs> something is different now. Absolutely, but but that's the whole point of the book. Yeah. It's it's that it's not that nothing changes. It's rather that existing tendencies are latched onto, magnified, and potentiated. That's what's happening with fake news. It's what's happening with depression and addiction. All of and even these sort of micro celebrity ecologies. Mm. You know, you used to have uh, letters to the editor, you used to have Vox Pops, you used to have all sorts of ways in which people could be micro celebs. It's just taken it to a new level. Well, we're going to stop there for a quick break and we'll be right back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I really enjoyed the section about trolls. Because you don't say that internet trolls are this weird species that are totally different or they're just a sort of bunch of sad mm. losers in the, the stuff that everyone says. You, I think you even say somewhere, we're all, we are all trolls. We all have trollish tendencies. Oh, yeah. Well, I certainly do. Um, have you been... actually trolled people before online? Not exactly online. I mean, except in as much as... <laughs> Not online, are, so offline. <laughs> there, are, there are, well, probably online too, actually, thinking about it. There are just ordinary forms of online behavior where you might wind somebody up. Yeah. Um, Without being particularly programmatic about it or malevolent about it, but there is a kind of sadism there. I mean, if you've ever wound up a mate 
and then, you know, sort of let him off at the hook at the end. You know, go, ah, got you, that kind of thing. That's the logic of trolling. There's a bit of sadism there, but in ordinary social life, you, you sort of let them in on the joke so that conversation can continue because if you humiliate them, there's no social life anymore. The trolls, the subcultural trolls that everybody gets upset about, for understandable reasons, emerged in the context of these message boards where essentially you had to be an anon. And that worked very well because essentially if you let details out about yourself, the assumption was that that was trollable. Any detail is trollable because Mm. any vulnerability is trollable. This is Whitney Phillips, her great study into trolling. Mm. I think it's probably the best one out there. Mm. Sort of says essentially... This is why we can't have nice things. Yeah, yeah. it's a great book. Yeah, she's um, one of those few academics that studied trolls for like a decade and a long very time, much, very yeah. much from from within. Yeah, she got into the trolling communities. So I think um, has a very non-judgmental attitude, which is very useful for us. But one of the things she points out is, you know, essentially what they keep coming for is your exploitability, and exploitability is a currency of vulnerability. In other words, you know, the justification for going after anybody is that they have some exploitable factor, feature. And an exploitable feature is anything that can be can leave you vulnerable to being harassed, wound up, whatever. In other words, just being human, you know. You're mm. punished for being punishable. It's this crazy superego function distilled into a kind of online subculture. Now, there are shocking examples of this kind of trolling, this kind of specialized subcultural trolling. One was, uh, I mentioned in the book, um, and Whitney Phillips also talks about is Mitchell Henderson, the kid who um, killed himself and his family had a sort of MySpace page commemorating him. Trolls found it, thought it was hilarious, and they discovered that he had lost his iPod a few days before dying, killing himself and they inferred or you know made it appear as if he'd done it as a sort of act of you know spite or like you know like oh just because i lost my ipod uh hashtag first world problems and that's the kind of that was you know and the more upset the family became the more these trolls find it funny and so you can and even though it's extreme i remember that case actually even though it's incredibly distasteful Mm -hmm. obviously and distressing and awful there's a sort of it's sometimes highly creative, the actual way that they use language and their yeah. imagination, even yeah. though it's it's just so dark and terrible. There's, some know, of there's their a, a strange talent to what they do as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not just, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, the, the way in which they chop up bits of language, the, their irony, their, their, some, some of their meme art and so on, but also, um, uh, you know, like they go after some people who probably aren't deserving. Um, actually, that's probably most of their targets. Mm. But sometimes their targets, you, you kind of sympathize with them and sometimes they're genuinely funny. Do they sometimes play a useful role in sort of political debate trolls? I don't know. And about... You've got to be careful with what you say here, haven't you? Because the way I see it, trolls, classical trolling, if you like, the sort mm. of the, the, the early 2000s and even before that, is not quite the same as what it seems to have degenerated into. There was a sort of tricksterish element, and it was funny. It was trying to expose hypocrisy. It was all kind of a bit of a joke. Whereas that sort of degenerated into let's post the address of some woman MP and threaten her with, you know, threaten that we're going to rape her. And they're both called trolling. And so the word itself becomes. Well, I mean, I think that ambiguity was always in there, to Mm. be honest. And I think, you know, as, as Phillips points out, most of the practitioners have been sort of young, white, male 
in Anglophone or uh, Nordic countries. So, I mean, but yeah, the extremity of this example notwithstanding, there are forms of social sadism, forms of trolling that have become quite generalized. And some, some of the research suggests that actually all it takes is for you to be exposed to what you may think is trolling uh, in order for you to start trolling. Now, given that trolling can take so many different forms, you're going to have concern trolling. Somebody raises an issue with something that you said and you might think, oh, they're just trying to wind me up and then you start flaming them in response. Mm. So it, it generalizes, it ripples out. And it does that on a format where essentially it's structured as a competitive like hunt. You know, everybody's got an individual account that is competing for attention, competing for shares, competing for likes. Now, I'm sure everybody, every individual person has much more complicated motivations to be on there. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't work. But that's the format. So it's competitive. It's individualist, if that's the way you want to put it. Um, and it tends towards a kind of backstabbing, showboating, uh, grandstanding kind of ethos. And in that context, it's kind of logical that you might have a certain amount of paranoia. Like, is this person coming after me? Is this person trying to wind me up? In which context you can see that sadism can emerge actually as a response to feeling threatened. It can actually be, in some senses, a form of masochism. Some of the uh, most interesting sort of um, work on these sort of troubling subcultures, it's kind of interesting to see how their individual enjoyment isn't really what's particularly important. Like, it doesn't matter whether you personally find this funny. As long as you abide by the rules of the subculture, um, as long as you're an anon and you contribute, you're contributing to the hilarity of the collective. As their slogan says, none of us is as cruel as all of us. Mm. So it's a, a very massified phenomenon. Do you think that trolling has some, the style of trolling has, which is, oh, don't take anything too seriously. Oh, it's only a joke. I don't know why you're getting so serious. I was only messing around. But using that cleverly so you can try to make a point and then when anyone gets upset, you can sort of stand behind the defense of sarcasm. Yeah has sort of drifted into political debate more generally. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump almost uses trolling as a bit of a style of politics. Absolutely. It, and I, I mean, how's that happened? How's it gone from a weird subculture, a sort of, alt, not even alt-right, a 4chan subculture into becoming part of our almost political mainstream? I think, well, there, there are a number of things here. First of all, I think it's not that trolling is intrinsically right wing or anything like that, but that the emerging cultures of the right that were coming up in the early years of social media latched onto trolling and trolling irony in particular as a very useful framework because one of the things about irony is that it always expresses ambivalence. It's not simply, you know, you can't just say, oh, well, I was just joking. Well, a joke contains two elements. It contains an element of, you know, here's a thought and I'm mocking that thought but you're also expressing it. You're also putting it out there. So if you put out a joke about, you know, Jews or black people or gays or something, you can say, I was just joking. Don't be so literal, yada, yada. But the whole point is you put that material out there for it to be digested. And irony is what has made it digestible. Mm. For a lot of people, it's it, yeah. inhabiting that space of ambivalence is actually quite ideologically useful. Andrew Anglin, sort of Nazi writer, hosts a number of websites and so on, sort of has made this case explicitly. We cannot, he says, advance a, a third-right 
sort of white supremacist agenda today in all seriousness. But with irony, we can put the material out there into the public discourse and it will be consumed. I mean, and, and, you know, some people will think it's a joke and some people will make that journey from this is a joke, it's an awful dark joke, to this is exactly what I think. I noticed throughout you draw on quite a wide range of literature in this book. You don't restrict yourself to technology books. Sure. Who who were the sort of... In- Suppose for people that are listening that are interested in technology but are thinking, I need to read wider than just tech books to learn about tech. What sort of area, what sort of books and people would you recommend they take a look at? It depends on your taste, but for me, a big theme was psychoanalysis because we're not just talking about machines; we're talking about people, and we're talking about how people relate to machines. Yeah. Some of you, you might remember the famous experiment with Joseph Weizenbaum's uh, ELISA computer, I do, where yeah. people started forming yeah. human relationships. Yeah. That kind of transference. Of it was a very, very simple psych, uh, yeah. psychoanalyst who was a, a machine who just was basically repeating the questions. It was almost like a form of trolling, actually, because it was just repeating the question. Yeah. Back to the questioner, wasn't it? Yeah, and and but people couldn't help but form complex human relationships with this bit of technology. And well, 20, 35, 40 years ago, yeah, very, that long, was really very, simple very simple stuff. Yeah, and now we're dealing with something way yeah. more sophisticated. So I think if you're interested in sort of coming at this from a number of angles, because this is a wholly new problem, we've not faced anything like this before. It's a new system, so we need to look at it from a lot of different angles. I found psychoanalytic material useful. Lydia Liu, her book on cybernetics and uh, psychoanalysis, Mm. I think was very good. I think I found Baudrillard interesting when he was talking about the simulacrum, because if you think about it, suppose... Just explain what that is to people that haven't heard of it. Simulacrum is an image that's made out of digital writing. So uh, if you're playing a computer game, well, that's a simulacrum. But if you're on the social industry, as I call it, that's also a simulacrum in a different way. And what he was saying is that increasingly, it's going to be harder and harder to distinguish between what we call reality and what we call simulacrum, because there's so much of what, how we live, how we interact and so on is going to be mediated by these images, these two perfect images that are produced by digital writing. And so the reality principle just collapses. That was basically, so that idea was part, partly behind the film The Matrix, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and that's why The Matrix is actually quite a good sort yeah. of, it's almost a Rorschach test, to be honest, but you can use it to sort of uh, the metaphor for thinking through yeah. what we're going through. But he saw back in the 1980s where this was going, and he was talking about things like advertising, he was talking about 24-hour news, all that stuff. And finally, what about Marx? Uh, as yeah. you, you're, you're, you're down here as a Marxist writer. Your Twitter handle is Leninology. That's a reference to Hal Draper. Uh, Hal Draper invented this term, and it basically it refers to a certain Cold War style of writing about uh, the Soviet Union and Lenin, which was, I mean, just to be clear, Draper was very anti-Stalinist. He was against the dictatorship, all the rest of it, but he thought that the sort of a certain Cold War style of uh, interpreting the Soviet Union was actually profoundly misleading and reactionary. And so this was a joke on my part. I invented this uh, coin. I, I, I took this label maybe back in 2003 when I started blogging. So it's not oh, new. Right, right. Uh, when I was a young um, uh, revolutionary, as it were. Um, right. But um, but yeah, I'm still a, a very much a Marxist. So has that? So has your has has Mar- has has sort of your Marxist view on the world sort of inspired this? The thoughts behind this? 
It's a combination of Marxism and psychoanalysis, I think, but also just, as you mentioned, so many other sources. But the the bit where Marxism comes in, I think Marxism is uh, pretty good as a, as, an analysis, uh, as a framework for analyzing how different parts of social reality fit together. So if you want to think about how does politics relate to economics, you know, how does ideology and culture relate to politics and, uh, and so on. In other words, it's about grasping how things relate. Um, and I think that with regard to the social industry, I took uh, a framework that actually um, partly Nick, Nick Cernicek, uh, the author of uh, Platform Capitalism, has already developed more or less uh, a coherent Marxist analysis of the economics of the platforms. And I thought, well, what, uh, what, what are the ramifications of that? How mm. does that uh, spool out? Because we know it's not just about economics because most of us are on it. We're not making money. Mm. Uh, we are producing data and so on. But what is at stake for us? And that's when, you know, you always reach certain limits with any school of thought. Marxism can't be ever a theory of everything. And that's when I came to, you know, look to psychoanalysis um, to sort of explain the other parts. Like, well, what draws us on there? What, may, what is so appealing about this? And that's where you have to talk about the unconscious. And that's where you have to talk about um, these libidinal investments that we have, even in the dark side. Yeah, you mentioned the death drive more than once, Yeah, actually. What's that got to do with this? Well, given our current politics, I think we really need to think about bringing that concept back. Okay, so what um, is going on with the idea of the death drive? Freud's trying to explain um, how it is that we end up becoming addicted to what he called unpleasure. How come we end mm. up uh, compulsively repeating unpleasurable and actually disastrous situations for ourselves? And I thought about this when I was looking at the internet, social media, because I, I just kept seeing people, you know, behaving in totally self-destructive ways. And I thought, of course, I've done that myself. Um, and I'm watching even celebrities who have real public relations strategies having these terrible, undignified yeah. fights with their followers. And you sort can see meltdown it. in real time. Yeah, 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 and I thought, well, what is so compulsive about that? Yeah. For some reason, this machine becomes more compulsive, more addictive when it's turned dark. Uh, it's almost like one of those sort of emotionally abusive lovers that sort of, you know, intrigues you with his mercurial indifference and sort of you never know how, how to be on the right side of him and all the rest of it. It's a bit like that. It becomes more um, sort of um, uh, an anxiously compulsive. Uh, when it's turned dark. And I sort of thought, well, we need to have a, a conception of this. Uh, and when you look at uh, addiction in general, it's absolutely the case that most addictions have a dark side and that the dark side is actually part of the appeal. So, for example, gamblers, almost to a man, have learned how to flatten their emotions in responses to wins and losses. So they don't der derive any real pleasure out of the actual wins anymore. But they have also learned how to um, derive a perverse pleasure from anteing up at precisely the point when they're losing everything yeah. uh, and putting their whole being on, at, uh, on the line at stake. So you could lose your family, you could lose your livelihood, you could lose your house, you could lose your car, just put it all on there. And that's kind of the pattern that you're seeing with the social industry. A lot of people are sort of... Every time you, you write a post, it's almost like a gamble. Yeah, I know exactly what Rolling you mean. Rolling a dice. Uh, Both it, in terms of what you, sort of whether you, the interactions you'll get, how many reasons, but in, in case it all goes disastrously wrong. And, it, and, it, and you which know, like, it could, because Twitter says, you know, what's, what's happening or what's on your mind? And yeah? you sometimes think, wow, shall I, shall I say what's really on my mind? Wouldn't that really 
mix things up. That would be so exciting. It would be exciting. It really, it, it, it is exciting. <laughs> it's always exciting to say what's on your mind. And yet, of course, um, you know, it, it's often disastrous. Yeah. So. so, I mean, of course, there's a, a part of us that is um, self-destructive. You know, this is just an ordinary part of life. We all do things that are self-destructive. There's a part of us that's addicted to uh, violence and excitement and the glamour of death and so on. And I'm not saying that that's all that's going on, because otherwise we wouldn't be here. Um, and the the question is not, you know, how can we um, purge these parts of ourselves? Because we're never going to do that. We shouldn't. The question is, how do we use them creatively? How do we work with the grain of what we uh, mm. what we can be? Mm. And how you how do we become better versions of ourselves? Mm. Um, so that's what. Well, okay, that's very interesting. Well, speaking of the death drive. The way that politics seems to have degenerated in the last couple of years in this country, the sort of collapse of the centre, mm -hmm. the unwillingness to compromise on anything, mm -hmm. the style and tone of debate, is that all a reflection, really, of what you're writing about in this book? Uh, there's, How do there, they relate to each other? There, there is a relationship. I mean, I think we we have to be very careful not to just scapegoat because there's a lot in our society that is... Uh, intrinsically polarizing you know there's inequalities there's injustices of, of all kinds there's also for a long long time faith in uh, official politics has been in decline um and you know the the ability of the extant party models to deliver what their audience actually wants has been really severely confined and so you know, what you had increasingly was a low turnout model of politics where a lot of people were just sitting at home because they couldn't be bothered to vote for any of this shower. All of that stuff was already underway. And then, you know, you think about the north-south division in this country. You think about how if you're in certain northern cities, you've had a really horrible recession. And then in other parts of the country, there's been no recession at all. People live very different and shockingly different lives. And then you introduce something like the social industry. What does it do? It corrals people into hard cultural camps, almost militarized garrisons, you know, whereas previously cultures were a bit porous in their boundaries, you know, they were a bit mobile, they shifted. Increasingly, they're sort of ossified and rigidified along Cold War lines. So, for example... Does this feel something like the left has, left has been as guilty of as the right, if not more so? I mean, I well, don't know if guilty is the right word, but... In terms of encouraging a very sort of tight sense of smaller and smaller identities that can't really cross and sort of warring. I think it depends on, I mean, the, the left obviously has, has its uh, Life of Brian uh, version, right? Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, the version of, you know, like, what did the Romans ever do for uh, me? And yeah. sort of that sectarian yeah, logic. So that, that's always been there. Um, and I, I mean, I think what's been sort of interesting in the last few years has been that the sort of growth of this kind of sectarianism and impossibilist style on the center. I think you've seen that very clearly on the internet. And what's happening here is a kind of cultural balkanization. Now, I'm not, I, 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 I want to make it absolutely clear here. I think that, I think very clearly that the right, and particularly the far right, is much more benefiting from this than any other political tendency. But of course, we have to be all in some way invested so what I think uh, happens is, for example, you get something like Gamergate. Hashtag Gamergate um, was one of the major moments in the development of the modern alt-right and the men's rights uh, activist movement. Okay, Well, that involved, in the beginning, a number of men who were upset that this woman allegedly had traded sexual favors for career advancement. It was a lie, but 
the interesting question is why that even mattered to them. They thought it was symptomatic of, you know, everything that was going wrong, women taking over, yada, yada. So that's how it began with this campaign of denigration and harassment and all the rest of it. People on what you might call the left um, or sort of liberal center, you know, woke people, whatever, got involved in the other side of this saying, you know, defending her. And what came out of this was that the very complicated and necessary delicate process of renegotiating gender norms, of renegotiating, you know, the relations between men and women uh, in, in a more just way, uh, as feminists quite rightly demand, that was filtered through this terrible machinery which only exists to get people typing more and more frantically and become irate and outraged. And so what you saw was people often attacking their own side, people resorting to extreme tactics, tactics like swatting. They're where, very delicate debates that we need to have collectively are yeah. now having to go through this system in a sense and, and run through the sort of logic of the of the twittering machine absolutely and i think that the, it just the, causes everything to be ramped up and it does emotionally charged and just to be clear i don't think it maps on neatly onto political polarization yeah i think cultural balkanization is is one form of politicization and what we are seeing certainly is the rise of the culture wars. And you've seen that in this country of a remain Brexit. Without, I mean, I think, you know, I, mean, I want to be absolutely clear that I think that the Brexiteers in this situation are by far the, the most unwilling and unrecalcitrant, uh, unwilling to compromise, unwilling to uh, make any concessions to the other side. But I have noticed this tendency on the remain campaigns to become very subculturalized, to become less and less interested in what a large part of the population thinks and to be talking only to themselves. And mm. that's happening, I think, largely because of this tendency for people to form sort of networks that are very insular um, and self-reinforcing. So, mm. of course, and, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm sure you would point out the Corbynistas have their versions of this, you know, mm. um, uh, and the, 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 what, you call, what you might call the alt-left, the kinds of people who um, follow left conspiracism and all that sort of stuff. Well, that was actually one thing I was going to ask you about. Yeah. Because... I mean, one thing that wasn't in there, for example, was the the sort of anti-Semitism of the left, which has, which to to me, fits quite neatly into your analysis. It's a sort of another form of soft conspiracism. Trying to, I think you talk about thin critical thinking, where it's an exciting adventure of finding mm. out what's really, really going on. People like Hannah Arendt have always written about anti-Semitism, obviously, yeah. as being a sort of early warning sign of authoritarianism drifting around, a sort of deep cultural malaise in society mm. where nobody really trusts anybody. And But you, but that wasn't, I mean, that was there, was there a reason that wasn't in there? Or was, I mean, I suppose it's a relatively it's, recent event yeah, compared to... No, 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 no. I mean, there, there's, it's, it's very straightforward. I, I, I think that if you look at anti-Semitism in the society today, Anti-Semitism is overwhelmingly, by every study available, overwhelmingly concentrated on the right and specifically the mm. far right. Mm. There's, I'm absolutely and completely unconvinced by the general mass media case that the left has a particular and invidious problem. That said, I do think, and here's, I mean, I've, I've written about this uh, on a numerous mm. occasions, I do think that there's a particular kind of style of anti-Semitism which you get among certain types of people on the left. It's a minority, but it has to be addressed because the real danger here is that it becomes more than a minority, right? Mm. So we're starting here with people who are invested in a certain conspiratorial way of thinking, thinking about the world, and they may not be consciously anti-Semitic, but then they start talking about the Rothschilds or something like mm. that. 
Or they start talking about the Israel lobby. And, you know, this concept was invented by American academics, but it can go off in an anti-Semitic direction very easily, I think. I think it's a very dubious concept, to be honest. And then you can see how people become paranoid about and then start thinking that, you know, that is a problem with Jews and yada, yada. So the whole discussion about Israel-Palestine, which should be a discussion about justice and peace, becomes a, a sort of a, a racial conspiracy theory. And that's, you know, you can see where where, where that's going. I just, I, I don't want to give the impression that I think because I don't think by any stretch of the imagination that this problem, which is a problem, is in any way on the same scale of the alt-right and the forms mm. of you know uh, armed racism that we're seeing. Because mm. if you think about the lone wolf attacks that we've seen recently, and a number of them have targeted Jews, all of them have come from the right. Mm. To a single, to a man, all of them have come from the right. So mm. I think that there, there are dangers here, and I'm particularly worried because globally you're seeing anti-Semitism on the rise in a number of uh, contexts where it's not just like Trump in the United States, but you're actually seeing, for example, in Hungary and in Poland, um, moves to, to essentially deny Poland's uh, unique responsibility for its role in the Holocaust. You're seeing talk about bringing back some form of special identification for Jews in parts of Eastern Europe. And I think that, you know, there was a period of time during which, um, and probably in this country, I think if you're not openly racially marked, you will just be considered white. But that's, you know, and, and as a result, therefore, you will not be persecuted by the police. You will not be discriminated against in terms of employment. But that's not guaranteed. That's, a, that's, a, that's, that's an historical outcome, or, and it's a very fragile one. So I think that we should take the question of anti-Semitism very, very seriously because it's, as you say, symptomatic. It's not just a, you know, in and of itself. There was a famous statement by, I think, Aimé Césaire, who said to his friend, you know, when they start talking about the Jews, pay attention because they're talking about you. Mm. And that's the thing. Anti-Semitism always has something universal to mm. say about the whole society. Mm. Let's just finish off with a couple of sort of positive solutions and mm -hmm. things that we, can, we might be able to do or things you think we should do. And I was interested in your case of Minitel. Mm -hmm. Minitel's the sort of French, French version of the internet, basically, mm -hmm. isn't it, that collapsed what, 20 years ago. But yeah. you tell the story in a slightly different way to how I've seen it before. Well, I, I, I mean... In as much as I relied on French authors largely talking about it uh, to get this sort of uh, background, and what I sort of what I think I would conclude about Minitel is that it was an example of a state-mandated free market using sort of technologies that it was kind they, of a government-run version of the internet, wasn't it? For a while, that it, was just in France. It was, and it would. But it, the thing about it was, is that it was run sort of at a, at a remove. It was very hands-off. You just you, basically what you did. The state guaranteed the structure. You bought a license. You could offer a service, which was a bit like their version of a web page. Mm. You could offer a service, or if you didn't want to offer a service, you could just um, get a, a, a terminal free of charge from your local authority. They give it to you, uh, and then you would pay for every month for how much you'd used. And you could use these devices for some quite interesting, like check the news, check your bank account, mm. even some of that smart home stuff like uh, change the temperature in your house, change the thermostat. So it was a very advanced form of technology for its time. And it was built on the French sort of Gaullist uh, state's attempt to modernize French capitalism, essentially. 
they said we, we're going to have to we're not NATO we're going to have to compete uh, we're going to have to develop our, our and and computerize our society they had some uh, they had their aversion of what was going on what the pentagon was in, uh, sort of researching with regard to the internet and packet switching and all of that and but so it they, but it, it didn't last and when i and it i kind of it lasted for a while but it, it, it didn't it didn't withstand the the worldwide web yeah. that's very clear the worldwide web was just technologically miles ahead. So the reason it's an interesting story is because it's suggested these days that we need something similar back, some kind of, I don't know, a BBC version of of a sort of public service platform that isn't monetized in the same way that Facebook's monetized, Mm. or some kind of government-led version of the Mm. internet that's run in the public interest. I mean, do you think ideas like that are feasible? Do you think things like that will work? Yeah, I I, I don't see why it shouldn't. We've got public service broadcasting. It works. For all its flaws, it works. I mean, you know, and there are things that the BBC does. I have a lot of criticisms of the BBC, but the things that it does that I don't think any other broadcaster, commercial broadcaster, would do. But um, isn't the problem that that your by your own admission in the book, it's we say we want these things to be nicer, the content to be you know less mm. dramatic and kinder to each other, but secretly deep down, we actually love all the nasty stuff too. I, as I say. I think we need to hold on to our ambivalence. It's what makes mm. us interesting. So, yes, of course, you know, the drama is very exciting. But I think, I think we're also quite tired of it. I think some of us are sick of it. And I think that in the same way that with an addiction, you can hit rock bottom and say, Geez, I need to stop this. It, it, a lot depends upon the services that are available to help you get over your addiction, et cetera, et cetera. And also how you're going to reinvent your life in the aftermath. Now, I don't think that we can just abandon technologies. I don't think that we can put the toothpaste back in the tube. I don't think we want to get rid of the internet. That would be ridiculous. So the question is, can we do better than the existing version? And talking about a public service internet of some form is just an incremental way of uh, shifting a bit of power and control towards users, frankly, because... Essentially, as Alice Marwick's research shows, I quote it in the book, she used to work at Microsoft, she did a PhD in this, and she basically said, look, what we know as the internet codifies the values and the purposes of a handful of humanity in Northern California, really wealthy white men who value competitiveness, who value individualism, who value hierarchy, who you know value celebrity and status, right? And that is one way of seeing the world, but that's just one very small part of humanity. So I think, what would it be like if we could experiment? How would we automate the purposes of a much wider section of humanity? And I think that's going to require a much more creative response than simply a public service internet, which is why I say it's just an incremental step. I think your concern might be, given what happened with Minitel, that the state can often be very slow to respond to new developments. I just think it'd be rubbish. People wouldn't want to go on there. Well, they do want to go on BBC, though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I mean, the, look, the, the, it, it, I, and I, I think, you know, there's no intrinsic reason why the public sector has to be rubbish at providing things. I think the question is, you know, who controls it really? Is, mm. it, is it being used for the government, for example... You can imagine it would the worry you, wouldn't it? I mean, if the government, the government-run social media platform, and then suddenly a different government selected that you don't like, and then they're right. I mean, it'd be terrifying. I think. I think it's a question of the norms and the legal standards mm. less than the government in control. It's a bit like the NHS. I'm for the NHS, whether the Tories are in 
or whether Labour. Mm. I don't, you know, I'm in, I'm in favour of the system. So I think we need to work out a system here that people can live with. And at any rate, even if it is rubbish, it's it's an idea. It's a, you know, we can float it, see where it goes. And if it doesn't work, we can see, well, is there another way we can do it that might work? It doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, one try and that's it. We can continue to experiment because in a way, as Mariana Mazzucato has written about the entrepreneurial state, that's what the public sector is for. The private sector doesn't like experimentation. It doesn't like taking risks because actually if you do that, you're going to lose your money. The public sector can invest money in, in areas and for purposes that private sector is totally uninterested in. So we could think about that. But I think beyond that, to be totally honest, um, I think we need to ha- have a, a think about could we restructure the internet? Could we redesign it in such a way that it wasn't dominated by a handful of monopolies um, offshoring their cash and, you know, who have every interest in putting us to work, manipulating us, yada, yada. And if so, what would that look like? And that's that's really where I want to leave that point is what would it look like? How could we do it? Um, does it need it be public sector? And if it doesn't, you know, I mean, for example, there's a there's a cyber left which has a strongly libertarian element, how would they do it? How would they redesign it? Um, And I really just want to open people's curiosity rather than prescribe anything. And I suppose the concluding point is I also want people to think about themselves individually. You know, if on average, the the average global internet user spends about 135 minutes a day on one of these platforms, take that statistic with a pinch of salt, as, as with all of them, but roughly something like that. That's quite a lot of time. That's probably more time than you spend meeting a friend face to face. So this this is your social life. By far. Yeah, right. So if you think about the average person globally has a life expectancy of 71 years. So that's 50,000 hours out of their lives. Think about what you could do with that time. Think about the projects that you could have for your life. I mean, you know... You know, we talk. We have this language of happiness and so on, as if you can get it from CBT or whatever, or by taking pills or you know something like that. But Aristotle had this idea of happiness, which was totally different. It's you need a telos, you need a purpose, you need a project in your life, and with that, you can undergo the ordinary miseries and difficulties of um, of life. You can undergo the the obstacles of learning new things. Um, and I th- I really want people to think, uh, take an executive look at their lives. Because addictions work by eroding that capacity, by going behind your back. Little decisions, day after day, begin to add up to an addiction. Uh, and uh, something that you started doing for entertainment starts to have veto power over every other form of enjoyment and love that you have in your life. Um, and so let's maybe try to free up our leisure time, reclaim it, and think about what other passions we could have other than this compulsive addictive, and sometimes very useful, but often very dark and difficult thing. Richard, thank you so much for the conversation. Um, The book is called The Twittering Machine um, and available, I assume, at all good and bad bookstores. I would hope so, yeah. Yeah. Richard (laughs) Seymour, The Twittering Machine. Thank you very much for listening and um, goodbye.